0: Hello, welcome to another episode of the Bitcoin Standard Podcast. Our guest today is Corey DeAngelis. Corey DeAngelis is a senior fellow at the American Federation for Children, and he's been labeled as the school choice evangelist by the media. And he's been also called the most effective school choice advocate since Milton Friedman. He is the author of a new book, mediocrity 40 ways government schools are failing today's students we're going to be posting links to Corey's book and twitter and the american federation for children in the show's notes so please be sure to check them out i personally cited cory in the fiat standard when i discuss education i discussed one very excellent statistic of his which we're going to get into and his work on schools choice, I think is highly, highly useful for parents. Even if if your kids are not in public schools, I think uh, you'll learn a lot by reading what Corey has to say about the schooling system in general. So Corey, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks so much for having me. You and I were on a panel in the Bitcoin uh, Magazine conference uh, a few weeks ago in Miami, that went really well. We had a pretty nice uh, discussion. I think there's a uh, there's a very natural synergy here between uh, Bitcoin and the uh, homeschooling, or at least schooling choice and fr- uh, freedom in schooling, which I think is going to make this kind of message, um, uh, both messages, I think, condu- um, well-received with both audiences. So let's begin a little bit with your background and how you got into this gig. Why would you as a grown up, you know, we all suffered through school, but then by the time we were out, the last thing that we ever wanted to talk about or hear about was schooling. So what brought you back into that lion's den and to try and fight for schools after you uh, finished your own schooling?
1: Yeah, look, I actually attended government run schools all through K through 12 in Texas. Uh, so if I make any mistakes on the podcast today, that's why I had to suffer through the government school system for 13 years of my life. Um, uh, but no, actually in high school, I had the opportunity to go something to something called a magnet school, which is still technically run by the government or the district, but you're not residentially assigned to magnet schools. You can choose to attend them or not. They can have admissions processes and standards. So it's a very weak, Sauce form of school choice. But even then, I saw that it was a benefit for me. It was actually located on the same campus as my residentially assigned monopolistic government run school, which uh, there was a night and day difference that I was able to see for four years straight on the campus. And I had better opportunities. I think other families should have more educational opportunities too. And it shouldn't be limited to schools that are run by the government. You should be able to take your children's education dollars to whatever education provider works best for them, whether it's a public, private, charter, or home-based education option. So that was my first experience with um, education reform or school choice. And then I really got into this as a researcher. I did my PhD at the University of Arkansas in education policy, where my first study looked at the effects of the Milwaukee private school choice program, scholarship program to go to private schools, and its effect on criminal activity later on in life. And that kind of thrust me into the, the national conversation. We found large reductions in crime by getting to choose a better school uh, for your kids. So I started to find out really quickly that the institutions of higher education were more like uh, institutions of ideological conformity. The peers in the few, peer review process were not my friends. They were not my peers. They were more, more like my enemies And so I started to go into the think tank world where I went to Cato Institute, then Reason Foundation, and now I'm at the American Federation for Children where we push to fund students as opposed to systems. We push for school choice policies.
0: Yeah, so um, tell us a little bit more about this idea. What do you mean by funding students rather than systems? And um, why is this a better idea in your opinion?
1: Right. In the current school system in the U.S., at least, you are assigned to a particular government-run school based on where you live, and we fund those schools with taxpayer funds to the tune of about fifteen or sixteen thousand dollars per student per year. And that was before—that was from the latest data from twenty twenty from the Census Bureau. It's probably a lot higher now because of all the so-called COVID relief that went into the schools. We pumped about one hundred and ninety billion dollars in so-called COVID relief into K 12 education since March. None of it was even really spent for reopening the schools. The majority of that money still hasn't been spent. If it was so necessary, why haven't they spent it yet? And the schools that had more resources were more, no, were no more uh, likely to reopen their, their doors in person. It was more about the unions holding kids education hostage to secure multiple multi-billion dollar ransom payments from the taxpayer. But we spend at least fifteen, sixteen thousand 16000 per kid in the government run schools per year the idea of school choice or the money following the child is having that same funding or a fraction of that funding follow the child so that they can use for another public school or government run school you can use it for a charter school or a home based education option or even a private school so it's literally the basic concept is the money that already exists that we're already spending will follow that student to a school that they choose just like we do with Think about Pell Grants for higher education. We don't tell low-income students that use Pell Grants that they must use that money at a government-run university. You can use Pell Grants at a private university or religious university if you want. Same thing with pre-K programs. Think about the Head Start program. You can use that money at a private provider of pre-K, and it could be even be a religious provider if you want. Uh, you can continue the analogy with other taxpayer-funded initiatives we have with food stamps or, or SNAP That money doesn't have to go to a residentially assigned government run provider of groceries. The family can choose to take the money to Walmart, to Trader Joe's, to Safeway, uh, whatever provider works best for their family. So when I'm arguing for school choice, it's basically that same logic that we use with all these other taxpayer funded programs to fund the people as opposed to the institutions and to let the the people choose. But the difference is with K through 12, as opposed to these other programs, it's a reduction in government size, whereas the others are, are more so of an increase in government size to, based on the default. The default today in K-12 education is we spend more per student than we would with these programs, and you have to take it to a government-run monopoly. Which So giving people more choice over that funding and using a fraction of the money is a decrease in government size, increase in individual liberty, and it should benefit society as well when kids aren't being indoctrinated in government-run schools to like big government policy.
0: Yeah, I think the, the, the startling statistic that you mentioned here, which is 15000 to $16,000 per student. I mean, yes, it's dollars, but it's a lot of dollars per student because there's a lot of students out there. And the number you mentioned of $190 billion for COVID relief is absolutely mind-blowing. I think the, 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 really, the really amazing stat, which I included in the fiat standard, is the one where you looked at the cost of a student in public schooling system of Washington, D.C., compared to the private school tuition. And it turns out that it's actually significantly more expensive to put a student through the public schooling system in Washington, D.C., than it is to just pay for their tuition in a private school, which is absolutely amazing because, I mean, everybody thinks, all right, public schools, they're free. They're not as good as private schools, but they provide the basic necessary education that you need. There's a sense of, you know, public education is – Sort of like the bare bones, you know, the meat and potatoes. Mm-hmm. It's the basics that you need. It's not fine <laughs> dining, but it's the meat and potato that you need to keep you strong. Well, arguably, just the meat should be the right thing.
1: If only the if the meat and potatoes are poisoned in the government school system. I mean, exactly.
0: And 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 it's not just that they're poisoned; they're they're more expensive than the fine <laughs> dining. Like you're you're getting right. crappy canteen <laughs> food, but you're paying more per meal than you would be paying if you went to the Michelin star restaurant across the road. <laughs>
1: That's right. D.C., for example, I used to live there. Uh, I'm glad I got out of there. I'm back in Texas where I grew up. But the D.C. government schools spend over $30,000 per student. And the kids using the private school scholarship program, their low income students, they only get about a third of that, about $10,000 per student to go to a private school. And the latest evaluation, which is a random assignment study of, of the program, a lot of the liberals in the media called it a failure because they got the same test scores. If you won the lottery to attend a private school, you had no better math or reading test scores. But it was at a third of the cost, 10,000 versus 30,000. And the liberal activists in the media somehow forgot to mention all the positive effects on things like safety and satisfaction that aren't measured by standardized test scores. This this is why as a researcher, I, I really got into looking at things like mental health benefits of choice programs, and also reducing crime and things like teenage pregnancies later on in life. There's a lot of stuff that schools can can form that are not captured by standardized test scores. And I think that's why we've seen a lot of additional victories in the past few years when it comes to school choice. It's not because families want higher test scores, that's part of it. But the the real thrust behind the latest movement towards more school choice programs has been that families started to see that the government schools are indoctrinating their kids in ways that aren't aligned with their values. So the curriculum is really important here. Families don't want to send their kids to institutions where they feel like they're being brainwashed for 13 years. So that's really mobilized parents to push for uh, alternatives.
0: Yeah, and this, you know, the the, the COVID lockdowns were absolutely catastrophic for children worldwide. And I was one of the people that was completely freaking out. Well, I wouldn't say freaking out. I'm not one of the... Covid hysterics, but I I, was—I mean, when 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 people were really worried about uh, people falling down in the street in China because of all those crazy videos that they saw, and they thought this killer virus was going to come kill us all. In my mind, the only thing that I was thinking about is just imagine the damage that it's going to do to young children who are going to have to spend, God knows how. You know, initially it was supposed to be two weeks, but it went on for two years and even more of lockdown and um, home education and it was it was absolutely terrible but the silver lining was that a lot of parents got to see what their kids experience in school and that i think has been the wind in your sails over the last couple of years hasn't it
1: Yeah, it has. And parents got to see that politicians and people in power are a bunch of freaking hypocrites. I mean, they were sending their kids to private school in person. You had Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, whining about Zoom school and how horrible it was for the kids in the public school while he sent his kids to in-person private school. I mean, just total hypocrisy. He also was dining out at the French Laundry. You had the Chicago's teachers union striking into 2022. The private schools in the same area To your you know, at the beginning, they were open from the start. They had less resources. Chicago government schools, I want to say, spent over twenty-five thousand dollars per student. And they just did everything they could to stay out of the classroom. They were they had their board members vacationing in Puerto Rico while complaining about going back to work because it wasn't safe enough to go back to work, obviously, but it was safe enough to go vacation overseas. That was totally fine. And then you had People in in Berkeley, California, teachers' union president, sending his own kid to in person uh, private school while saying saying it was too problematic for his members to go back to work. He had the Chicago teachers' union tweeting that that the push to reopen schools is rooted in sexism, racism, and misogyny. They tried to throw every everything at the wall to see what would stick, and it kind of worked for them. They they were able to hold children's education hostage. Uh, at least in the short term, it, it rewarded them with billions of dollars in taxpayer uh, ransom payments, but it really hurt their credibility, and it really showed parents, because of this remote learning, which I really like to call remotely learning because there wasn't a lot of learning going on, families at least got to see what was happening in the classroom. And once you see that, you can't unsee it. So we we had a lot of victories in 2021. We called it the year of school choice because 19 states enacted or expanded uh, school choice programs and then in 2022 we had the first state ever uh, basically do Milton Friedman's vision of school choice for everybody universal school choice for the first time ever and that was in Arizona and West Virginia and then now in 2023 we're saying it's a new record-setting year for school choice because we've already had four states uh, enact uh, universal. Uh, it was Iowa, Arkansas, Utah, and Florida. Every family, regardless of income, is eligible to take their kids' education dollars to wherever they want to go, as long as it's an approved education provider. And we're not done yet. It's only it's only June. We still have uh, much more time for more victories. But you know, historically, when I was studying the Milwaukee program and other programs, these were programs that were, uh, at least at the beginning targeted to students based on either whether they had a special need or certain income levels. Now the push has been towards everybody's eligible, which is great. It's We've gone from 0
0: to 100 uh, real quick when it comes to school choice. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating to watch this unfold. I think what's what's really um, instructive, the thing that I've learned from this, from, from that statistic that I mentioned earlier, which is that it costs more to put a student through the public schooling system is just I think a very, very powerful lesson about the way that free stuff works. And I always like to say this: you know, nothing is more expensive than free. Free is the most expensive thing. Anytime somebody tells me you are getting something for free, I'm real, I am real. I know for a fact I am about to be getting scammed. I am about to get scammed one way or the other because, you know, the the, the I, I enjoy hearing that somebody's just going to charge me a fixed price when somebody just puts a number and says, you know, do you have to pay this much. I like that living in that world. This is how much they'll take. This is what they offer. And it's up to me to decide whether it's worth it or not. When you hear free, you know, people's eyes lit up because (laughs) they think, oh, I'm getting something for nothing. But no, you know, a lot of people learned this with Facebook after they found out that Facebook was using their data in ways that they don't like. A lot of people learned, yeah, uh, you know, if you're getting something for free. You are the product. You are not the consumer. Uh, you know, no, no business can sustain itself by handing things out for free. So if you're getting them for free, you need to ask yourself, why am I getting them for free? Who benefits from me getting them for free? And I think this is enormously, enormously powerful analytical lens to look at education because you soon realize what it means. But also in other aspects of life. So in, in education, we see you know, if you're getting the, your education for free, well, what kind of education are you getting? As what we see from public schools. So what has been your experience about the um, public school experience? You know, what are the problems with public schools in general um, in the US? The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots 12 hours apart to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House which will be publishing and delivering the best bitcoin and austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook and ebook formats. Go to the safehouse.com to buy my latest book Principles of Economics as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lichack's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with a nice colored dust jacket on top. Go to the safehouse.com and get yours now.
1: Yeah, one is that you know, the, the sticker price is zero, like you pointed out, so it's quote-unquote free at the point of entry, but it's indirectly very costly to society and people who send their kids through the system. But yeah, just from a number standpoint, I said we spend about 15, 16K per kid. If you look at the latest federal data, you go back to 1970, that number has increased by about 152% after adjusting for inflation since 1970. So we spend a lot more, the outcomes haven't gotten any better. And you look at the At at where the money goes, it goes towards administrative bloat and staffing surges. You look at teacher salaries over the same period. Spending went up by 152% in real terms. Teacher salaries only went up by 8%. So the system is bad for students, but it's also bad for employees, too, because it's a monopoly for consumers, but it's also a monopsony in the labor market where they don't have to compete they don't have to compete for employees because the government is basically the only provider in town so it's it's a problem for everybody involved in the system and yes it fails kids in a lot of ways it could be academically but i think even more importantly is when uh they start to that you know a lot of people see the school system and and we, they saw this at the very beginning with Horace Mann the the secretary of education in Massachusetts which brought the first compulsory education law to to the americas after he visited Prussia in the 1930s, which is modern day Germany, where their explicit purpose of having compulsory government uh, controlled schools was to shape a citizenry that was aligned with whoever was in charge's values to create obedient soldiers for the army and to create uh, obedient factory workers as well. So it was all about this idea of obedience to the state. And we see a lot of remnants from that today whether you have to raise your hand to go to the bathroom, you have to, it, you know, a lot of it's about turning things in in time. It's not about actually mastering the subjects. It's about obedience and listening to authority figures. And when you're learning something, you better sit in the classroom and, and do it that way, where I don't think that's a very conducive way to learn. I mean, even when I was in government-run schools, the way that I learned things was not listening to the instructor and, and absorbing information that way from the top down. It was more so from the bottom up through me, Uh, going home and reading the materials, doing the homework myself, uh, and listening to videos and and talking to other experts or peers about the topic. That's a little, it's, learning is more so driven by self-interest than uh, authority figures trying to force feed things down your throat uh, for several hours a day, even though you're not interested in the subject. So I think kind of the, and we, we see that with We talked about the the COVID lockdowns, the teachers unions lockdowns and how that woke up parents is that some people see the school system still today as a way to force their values on other people's kids. And this is why there's been a parent uprising over the past few years. The schools aren't just focusing on the basics. They're not focusing on math, reading and writing. That's probably why our nation's report card scores are horrendous. you know, two thirds of kids not proficient in math or reading. And you look at the U.S. history results that just came out in U.S. history, only about 13 percent of eighth graders in the U.S. are proficient in U.S. history on our nation's report card scores. It's absolutely it's worse in some places, better than others. But then kids are also exposed to, you know, a lot of people try to knock on homeschooling and say that, oh, well, you're going to miss out on all this socialization Well, are they really and and are we actually upset about the forms of socialization that they're missing out on? There's a lot of negative forms of socialization that go on that goes on in the government school system, whether it's bullying or drugs or kids having uh, sexual relations at young ages, which leads to teenage pregnancies, which leads to the problems later on in life. You have gang activity. This is probably why uh, my study found reductions in crime associated with school choice programs is that the public schools are more likely to have uh, gang activity and students can can get away from that and and lead a better life if they're not involved in the criminal justice system. So uh, with homeschooling, you can capitalize on the positive forms of socialization if your parents set it up well, especially if you're doing like these micro schools that really started popping up over the past few years, which they've been going on for more than the past couple of years. But people are creating pandemic pods, which I would think of as a micro school where you get five to 10 children together in a household. You're essentially economizing on the process of homeschooling, but you're also getting some of the benefits of socialization that is customized by the parent. So you can can maximize the positive interactions, minimize the negative interactions that happen at the public schools, and your kid can lead a better life going forward.
0: Yeah, no, I agree entirely. Obviously, I think it's it, it's pretty startling, um, you know, those of us who aren't in the U.S. Uh, when we see the sort of things that happen. In, and and it's not just American schools. It's unfortunately spreading all over the world. But there definitely is, does seem to be a serious issue with um, schools and teachers in general really, really, really wanting to put in propaganda into the kids' minds and particularly um, sexual propaganda which you know is is absolutely startling for me i think there is no context I, i've thought about this very long and very hard and i absolutely think there is absolutely no valid context whatsoever for any adult to be talking to any prepubescent prepubescent child about anything sexual there's absolutely no reason for them to learn anything sexual before puberty i think children aren't able to understand sexuality before puberty. And I think they, they're not curious about it, you know, unless obviously, unless um, directed toward by um, some influence, but there, there there's no good reason why an adult, uh, a stranger in particular needs to talk to you about it. Obviously, if you have curiosity, you could talk to it, your parents, I can understand that. And I can see why the parents would want to have that conversation at a certain point pre, puberty or post puberty, but there's no context in which uh, school needs to talk to you about this. I get it. You need to learn biology at some point. Yes. But you know, that's probably after puberty and like, you're not going to be learning, um, about procreation in second grade or third grade. It's, it's a little too early for that. It's just, you know, these kind of complex bodily functions are not taught at that age. And yet I mean, there seems to be an enormous, an enormous, an enormous concern with educating children about these issues, about about sexuality. You know, you you can wonder what the motivation for this is. And I think perhaps a part of it is that a lot of these uh, teachers don't have their own children and want to experience the kind of intimacy of a child-parent relationship by talking about these kind of very intimate topics. Um, perhaps. That's one way of thinking Mm -hmm. of it. Perhaps there's something more nefarious with some of the teachers where they're trying to take advantage of the students, perhaps. But generally in my life, I I don't spend too much time analyzing people's uh, motives. I like to just assess their actions. And the action is completely insane. If you're talking to a child about anything sexual, it's insane. And yet it's considered completely normal in most of um, modern education, particularly in public schools these days. Yeah,
1: I mean, only if they were just teaching biology, right? They're, but they're teaching biology wrong too. Uh, you know, they're they're confusing kids, telling them that they have a hundred thousand genders. Uh, that you could be there's an infinite number of genders. So, I mean, the, they get the biology wrong. But yeah, I mean, w- what you're saying more more to the point is, you know, I think parents get upset about this topic more than even the critical race theory stuff. I mean, kind of there was this first wave of, you know, dis, displeasure with critical race theory and teaching kids that, you know, either they're an oppressor or they're the, the oppressed and, you know, kind of these politically divisive topics. But even more concerning for parents across this political spectrum is talking to kids about sex at a, at, at too young an age. And yeah, I mean, I don't know what the the motives are for Um, employees in the system, you know, wanting to do, I think your, your first theory could have something to do with it because a lot of this battle is really about parental rights and whose children are they. And you have a lot of people in the system or who who control the system, at least think that the children and the money meant for educating them belong to the government institutions. There, it's a socialist worldview where they think your children belong to the government schools and. That's where parents have had this this uh, knee-jerk reaction of doubling down and protecting their kids, and as they should, and, and they're doing it in a lot of ways. They're going to school board meetings and pushing back. They're actually reading uh, books that they don't approve of that are in the school libraries that are se- sexual in nature, and their parents are getting their mics cut off at the school board meeting. Why? Because it's not appropriate content for adults at the school board meeting, which, which raises the obvious question, if it's not appropriate content for adults to be just discussing at school board meetings, why is it appropriate for other adults to talk to my kids about these same topics in schools? It's just It, it really just goes to show you it's that the books probably shouldn't be allowed in the schools. And then you know you also get pushback on the parents at the school board meetings. We, there was this big story that came out a couple of years ago now, I want to say, where the, the the National School Boards Association sent a letter to the, the Department of Justice to label parents as domestic terrorists or to investigate them for domestic terrorism for pushing back at school board meetings. Literally, I mean this go this this really just opened up everybody's eyes to this horse, this this BS idea of demo so-called democratic accountability. There's the, the it, it is not this fairy tale version of accountability that everybody imagines, where everybody goes and shows up, they get what they want because they voice their opinion. No, what happens? You get labeled as a domestic terrorist if you're upset about the schools talking to your kids about sex and other topics that aren't that you aren't happy with. So there, there, there is no responsiveness from these these government institutions. Why? Because they're monopolies. They don't have to listen to you. It's better for them just to write you off. And it's better for them just to uh, try to silence you. And that's what they've done for for far too long in so many places. And that became so obvious over the past few years. And that's why I argue school choice is the better solution. Bottom-up accountability always beats top-down government mandates and uh, so-called accountability. There's no such thing as top-down accountability. It's just red tape regulation and, and authoritarians in control of other people's kids. The better way is to say, you know what, if you don't listen to me at the school board meeting, I'm going to take my money over there. And then you hit them where it hurts. You you hit them at the bottom line and if enough people vote with their feet, well, maybe those in control of the school system will up their game. And we've actually seen that. There's 29 studies on the subject. 26 of the 29 studies find statistically significant positive effects of private school choice competition on the outcomes in the public schools too, so it's a rising tide that lifts all boats. But you have
0: to, you have to give the public schools an incentive to change. Yeah, I think that's a, that's mm-hmm. a very important point, which is that um, they'll have to get their act together if they can't get your uh, money uh, unconditionally. And I think you touched on probably the root of this issue, which is you know I was saying. I I don't care much for motivations. I kind of lied because (laughs) economists are always thinking about incentives. But yeah, you're right. I mean, I think it ultimately comes down to the fact that uh, statist education and the government system treats people's children as if they are the property of the state. And so teachers in the public school system come at their job from the perspective that... These are children that come from houses of people who have no idea how to teach their kids. That's why they're sending us our kids. And that's why it's our choice to decide what the kids need to do. And so therefore, you know, (laughs) you could be just any other run-of-the-mill 25-year-old idiot and get a job at a a school. And whatever stupid idea goes into your brain that is, you know, put there by the garbage TV and the garbage Hollywood you watch any, it's very easy to influence you to think that that is just the way that the world works. And then it's very easy to extend that to go into thinking, yeah, well, the parents and whatever ideas the parents have about uh, parenting and about what their children should do. Well, that's all wrong. And we're going to fix that. And we're going to fix them by teaching them what is right. And, you know, there's this, you see this very often, this kind of mentality of, um, a lot of these people don't have the ability to even um, disagree with you. They simply can only inform you of why you're wrong. They want to educate you. They want to explain to you. They want to inform you. And I see this—you know—see this, uh, you know, I see this in common on Twitter where people can't, uh, people don't. I mean, not everybody, but I mean, you see this kind of fraction of society essentially that you know you could say something. I disagree I'll tell you hey um you said this thing I disagree I think that thing but there's a breed of people that um doesn't understand the idea that they disagree with you they they're not going to disagree they're not going to try and offer you an alternative perspective they're there to correct and educate you and I think uh, being a school teacher is very conducive to developing this kind of uh, I should say mental disorder wherein you, you think you're just out there uh, to correct and inform and educate and guide uh, essentially children and that extends to their parents and so you know the parents might have um, you know they, they come from a religious family and their religious tradition is that we do things a certain way and they would like their kids to grow up based on that tradition that has worked for their family for dozens of generations just because you've watched the stupid hollywood uh, film that um tells you this is wrong, doesn't mean the family needs to uh, get rid of everything.
1: Right. And like we, we see this with politicians, too. It's like nonstop hypocrisy. You got Joe Biden. He went to private school, sent his kids to private school. You currently have the governor of North Carolina, Roy Cooper, sent one of his kids to private school. Now he's fighting so hard against school choice. They have super majorities in both chambers. The Republicans, they have enough to override a veto of school choice from the governor that's expected. Uh, and it's it'll expand it to every student uh, this year in North, so it's a huge victory that's about to come to North Carolina. the The governor is such a freaking hypocrite and he's so scared of the teachers unions losing power over other people's kids that he actually declared a state of emergency in the state of North Carolina over school choice. It's so scary for the monopoly and the people that they fund, the politicians, the Democrats in particular. I mean, you look at the, the donations from the teachers unions, the, the American Federation of Teachers, Randy Weingarten's union. I looked in 2022 on Open Secrets, 99.97% of their campaign contributions go to Democrats. So you 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 look at school choice and you wonder why Democrats are against it when it comes to politicians, whereas their voters are for it. You look at the families that use school choice programs, it's Democrats, Republicans, independents. But the people who vote against school choice consistently are the ones who are funded by the teachers unions. And it's all about special interests and power dynamics of, of the political system has nothing to do with logic. You can make left leaning arguments and right leaning arguments for school choice. But the thing is, one of the parties is disproportionately controlled by the teachers unions. And Gavin Newsom fights against school choice. He he sent his kids to private school. Elizabeth Warren Fights Against School Choice Center from Massachusetts. And she was a presidential, you know, hopeful in 2019 in the Democratic primaries. During that time, I actually exposed her for sending her kid to private school. It was not public information until 2019 when I, I found it on Ancestry.com. I found his yearbook. And she actually lied about it on video. She lies about everything. Surprise, surprise. But she also lied to a voter to her face on video where the voter said, I just want the same opportunities you had. I want to send my kids. I heard you send your kid to a private school. And, And Elizabeth Warren responded, no, my children went to public schools. Well, little did she know, there was a New York Post article that I wrote out there exposing her for sending her kid to private school. So she's a big hypocrite. She lied about it. But this is nonstop. This is – when I find – when I see a school choice opponent and then I find out that they're a politician who doesn't send their kid to private school, I'm more surprised about that than the other way around at this point. But you also had a politician in Kentucky uh, last year, a year or two ago, where she made the argument – it was a Democrat – that you know someone else said, oh, yeah, people, if they get the money with education savings accounts, they can shop around for the best school, right? You can shop you – know, if, if it's another – public school, fine. If it's a private school, you can shop. You can figure it out. The customer can figure it out. And the Democrat goes on the House floor and actually has the audacity to say, you know, we we really expect low-income parents to to shop around for for an education. Basically, this elitist mentality that, oh, you know, these parents in the public school system, they're just too dumb to, to figure it out for their own kids. And it's like, regardless of income, parents care about their kids more than you. And they know more about their individual kids than bureaucrats sitting in offices hundreds of miles away. It's, a, you know, it's, it's Hayek's uh, information problem of central planning that, that even if you have a benevolent uh, authoritarian dictator in charge, or if they're, if they're benevolent and they're in charge, they're not going to get the decisions right for individual families. And, and so school choice solves that problem by putting parents in the driver's seat.
0: Yeah no I think this is, um, th- this is one of my favorite things about your Twitter account. It's, uh, it's always fun watching you call these people out because um, very few people do it. They're very good at lying and they're very good at presenting themselves as the heroes. You know no, 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 we, we have to fight for our public school system. All right, well, then you know fight for it by putting your kids there. No, right? If you like your public school, you keep it. Exactly. No, <laughs> I will fight for it by forcing you to keep your kids there while my kids go to a private school, which, you know, costs less than I'm charging the taxpayer to put your kids in that school. Because ultimately, it's all the benefit, as you mentioned, you know, it's, it's ultimately about teachers unions. That's really the key thing. And it's it's it's, you know, whenever you see these examples of things that are free, this is, you know, on top of the propaganda, on top of the brainwashing, on top of the fact that education today is about the state building an army of zombies that can just be made to jump through whatever stupid hoops their TV tells them to jump through. Which is, you know, as we saw with the COVID, it's been enormously successful. I mean, uh, the, the more educated people mm-hmm. were, the more gullible they were in believing the garbage propaganda that came out. And so clearly, you know, that that system is uh, ha- has been working. But uh, beyond all of the propaganda and beyond all the nefarious agendas that are being um, actualized through government-centralized control of schooling... Ultimately, there's a bureaucracy in there and it's the bureaucracy that's in charge. The bureaucracy is what benefits and they're out there looking for their own interest. And I think, you know, you, you you get so much further trying to understand how things work in the world by just, you know, analyzing who's getting paid and what their interests are. And in this case, in the case of education, it's very clear, you know, the public schools, uh, teachers unions, they have relatively cushy jobs. They get three months off every year and they, you um, essentially that they keep making their job easier they keep turning that job into a teacher walks in and talks about their feelings to the students it could be their feelings about whatever the TV told them to get agitated about or it could be their feeling about you know their private life or it could be their sex just the idea of sex is constantly on their mind so they want to talk about it and that's what it comes coming down to like you can understand that if, if you just think teachers' unions want to get paid as much as possible and want to do as little work as possible, it all starts to make sense. Right. And then teachers' union bosses, uh, they they they
1: get the the lion's share of the funding. I mean, Randy Weingarten, yeah. who keeps stepping in over and over again, keeps trying to rewrite history saying, oh, no, we were actually fighting as hard as possible to reopen the school since April of 2020. I mean, that's, that's her main talking, point. she actually testified before Congress. She makes over – per year, and to go make a fool of herself nonstop, basically funded through by the taxpayers, uh, because that's how we fund the government school system. And she's just trying to rewrite history. It's like, okay, if you were trying so hard to get them open, why were the private schools open right away? Your, Your unionized schools were not open two years later in places like Chicago. I mean, two weeks to slow the spread turned into Two years to flatten a generation in union-controlled areas. The union-controlled districts had uh, were closed longer than the non-union state. I mean, you look at like California versus Florida and Texas. Florida and Texas not as controlled by the teachers unions, and they opened a lot uh, sooner. And they spend less per student than they do in, in California, for example. And I mean, they they were lobbying the AFT and the NEA, the two largest teachers unions, were lobbying the CDC to make it more difficult to reopen schools. And they, they actually suggested language to the CDC on the school reopening guidelines. It was later discovered with FOIA email requests, uh, Freedom of Information Act, that they had to cough up. But uh, the, the CDC adopted the language on at least two uh, occasions, nearly verbatim. And then we just found out, what was it, yesterday, that through another FOIA request, a parents group in Virginia found out, that there were text messages, really chummy relationship, like there are BFFs between the president of the teachers union, the NEA, Becky Pringle, and the president of the other teachers, largest teachers union, the AFT, Randy Weingarten, text messages between them and the CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, who's the the Biden CDC director. And, you know, they're just texting each other. And there was a, a random smiley face that went from, the, the CDC director to Becky Pringle after a Biden speech where they were pointing out that teachers got to go to the front of the line for, for vaccines and that schools could only reopen if they got a ton of money. I mean, it was just – no one else had access to the CDC director like this. I, I mean, a lot of parents certainly didn't, but you had the teachers' union bosses right there uh, just working side by side with the CDC director. It's They weren't following – the CDC wasn't following the science – through COVID, they were following the political science. And so we had these, you know, tr- trusted so-called experts that are being lobbied by special interests. They weren't following the, the science. They were, they were listening to political interest groups. And this is going to do more to erode the trust of society in, in government agencies than, than anything else that I've seen in, in, in my life. So Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's another silver lining. Maybe people should be more um, skeptical of those in power in government institutions. So maybe that is another silver lining, but it took uh, a lot of, of infringement on individual liberties to get here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the, 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 um, the same analysis that I was making for education in terms of what is free can be applied to the medical mafia and all of the very free good things that uh, supposedly they give to the world. When you actually dig a little bit deeper, you realize a nothing is free. And again, if you're getting it for free, you are the product. And so just like, uh, you know, the goal is to propagandize you and turn you into um, a pliable serf of your government. Similarly, I think we could see, and a much darker, perhaps, uh, picture. Even darker than that, when it comes to the medical interventions, particularly the ones that are pushed for free, because who knows what the hell the agenda is from um, getting all of that uh, stuff inside you. Uh, but you know, no, obviously, it's clearly they care about <laughs> your health. That's why they're giving it to you for free, right?
1: <laughs> right. I mean, the, the, with the with the school system, you know, I, I should have started with this, but. I'd say the main problem is, one, it's run by the government. The government sucks at everything it does. Two, it's a geographic monopoly. You're, you're assigned to the place regardless of how well it does. You got to go there and take your money there. I mean, just imagine if if you wanted to, to change grocery stores or restaurants and they're poisoning you with the food. Your kid was throwing up every day. It cost a ton of money and you had to pay for it through your property taxes, In order to get away from that grocery store and to get better groceries, you had to move houses to go somewhere else to another government run grocery store that might have the same problem in a couple of years. It's very highly costly to move houses. It's a huge transaction cost, even if you have a lot of money. Just the act of getting up and switching houses, that is a large amount of transaction cost, regardless of income, that gives the assigned provider way too much power over you and uh gives them little incentive to do well and a lot of incentive to raise their costs at all and to lower quality at all at at, at every step of the way and that's basically what we have with the government school system you want to get access to a better public school government-run school you better have the ability to move to a better school district why because in the current system the public schools aren't public you you can't just go to a, a school that you want to go to based on your preferences. They're not open to the public. They are very restrictive and they discriminate on the basis of zip code. Uh, you have to move houses. It's, it just makes no sense to to have any industry structured this way. We don't do it with any other industry. We don't do it with other levels of education either. You can you can pick your community college or state university. You can pick your pre-K provider. It's only with K-12 education that we force people into this box Based on where they live, and it's just once you start to understand it in those terms, and and the problems of monopoly power, the failures of the government school system, be uh, just just make a lot more sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think I remember um, I remember once reading a piece, uh, an article, um, an academic article that tried to quantify um, the quality of schools' impact <clears throat> on uh, property taxes and basically it comes down to you pay the same amount that you would have paid for education in your property taxes and it's it's uh, it, it's it's pretty remarkable but that's economics for you and that's how economics works like there's a cost and the cost is going to be paid in some way and if you value this education for fifteen thousand dollars let's say then you're going to pay fifteen thousand dollars extra in taxes in order to get that education for your kids and so this notion that it is free is obviously ridiculous you're still getting paid from taxes but what you're doing by uh, making it into this form of monopoly is that you are separating the payment from the quality so now you're paying the money that goes into your local um, municipal bodies that goes into the contractors that build the houses that goes to all kinds of people that don't have anything to do with the quality of your education that you're getting they're the ones that are making the extra money they're the ones that are making some of that extra money that goes into raising the cost of houses you know it's the difference so if you look at the, the way that that study was done is to try and look in houses that are comparable on every metric you know same size of a house same size of everything and then you mm-hmm. see that on uh, you know you you try and isolate the factors through regression analysis and you can quantify how much the uh, value of schooling is so there is that value but it is going to taxes but it's not going to education so the only thing that you gain by saying let's make it free is that you lose the ability to hold the provider to account and so now you are stuck with a provider that you have no choice but to go with and instead of just moving your kid out of a school so that you know instead of driving them uh, 10 minutes in this direction you drive them 16 minutes to the other direction and get them to school every day. Now you need to move your entire house and relocate yourself. You know, (laughs) it can can cause massive inconvenience for your work. It can cause massive inconvenience for uh, your social life. But that's your only way of holding your school to account. And so obviously that's not going to be a very effective instrument. It's going to be a very blunt instrument in terms of holding the school to account.
1: That's right. And that's why education savings accounts are kind of the new push for school choice that is really the, the purest form of bottom-up accountability or, or voting with your feet or funding students as opposed to systems. I mean, a lot of people on the who are listening probably know the voucher idea that was pushed by Milton Friedman. It's kind of the, the first wave of school choice where the money that would have followed you to the government school, the fifteen or 16000 you take in the form of a voucher. You can only use it for private school tuition and fees. And we talked about this a little bit at the, the Bitcoin conference in Miami Beach where the, the new kind of push has been towards something called education savings accounts, kind of like the voucher, the money that would have followed you to the government school, 15, 16,000, would instead go into an education savings account. You could use it for private school tuition and fees, but you could use it for any other approved education expenditure too, which opens up the market even more than, than a voucher, which kind of keeps you in this brick and mortar, private and public education factory model system. With the voucher, but with the ESA, it opens it up for micro schools, for homeschool curriculum, for private tutoring. We kind of talked a little bit about like the Uberization of education where you can connect the the consumers of education services, the parents and their students to providers, educators of of, of education services using an Uber type app. There, there was one called unschool.school that was that sprouted up over the pandemic period. So the future of education could look a lot different, I think, uh, especially if it's facilitated through education savings accounts as opposed to vouchers where you can really have a, a more robust supply side response uh, if, if the parent can truly direct the, the dollars uh, through the savings account model.
0: Yeah, before before we get into that uh, more deeply, I wanted to ask you, what's the state of play when it comes to virtual learning and uh, shut down schools? Are there still schools that are shut down for COVID in the year of 2023, as far as you know?
1: No, no, that's not really a thing. I mean, last year, it was, it was a bigger deal. Last year, you had Chicago, like I said, voted to strike in 2022. I mean, it was... And they were doing these interpretive dance videos, you know, to 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 protest reopening schools. And they were, it was just, it was so embarrassing. I mean, like, first of all, it's like I don't want you teaching my kids how to dance. I can't do it either. But but like, really, had the dance teachers out there creating these dance videos to protest going back? Like anything they could do to not go back to work. It was, it was just so embarrassing. And they were tweeting it was racist to reopen schools. They were. They were voting to strike and doing dance videos to protest it. They were vacationing with full hypocrisy on full display in front of the entire nation. And so, yeah, right now it's not really there's not they're not really closing the schools like like they were um, okay. like, you know, last year.
0: But what about uh, online learning and remote learning? Are schools still supplementing with that or are they you know doing reduced because I heard there were plans to say that you know there's not going to be um, a return back to uh, to a pre pandemic world we're part of the new normal there was a lot of talk about that in 2020 I mean, and twenty twenty one and there was an idea that you know kids will do three days of school and two days of remote learning or the so, other way around. yeah the- is that still going on or is it
1: that's that's the exception as opposed to the norm. There there are some districts pushing for 4-day school weeks instead of 5-day school weeks and so like that may maybe that's you know has something to do with them getting used to working from home, but you know my initial response to that was okay, 4 days instead of 5 days, are you going to give the the parents the $3,000 per student back <laughs> because we're spending you know, five k per kid. Divide that by you know the five days. Um, are you going to give them three thousand back? Probably not. The thing is, they want to continue getting paid the same amount, do less work, just like you pointed out earlier. That and it's right. If you start to think about all these policy shifts uh, from that perspective, they all start to make sense. Why would you go from five days to four days? Well, I get to stay home a little, little longer, and I don't have I don't have to refund refund the customer like I would in any other industry. You only give them four fifths of the product. Well, you should give them you know, twenty percent of the money back, but they don't do that in the government school system. So they'll continue to try to push for four-day, even three-day work weeks if they can. It's amazing they got they got away with closing the schools, pretending that they were doing something, and still continuing to get that fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars per kid per year where parents were scrambling, paying out of pocket for private school tuition and fees, while all that same property tax funding and other tax revenues continue to go to the closed schools. That's why the public schools closed so long. It's because they got the same money regardless. And it, it, it was worse than that. It was way worse than that because they were able to say not just that, oh, we need the same amount of money. They were able to say, look, we're closed because we don't have enough money. That's obviously the problem, right? So, and they've said this for decades with test scores too. They've said, oh, the test scores aren't getting any better because, you know, This is a lot of tough work and we're having difficult students to educate. So, you know, you've only increased the funding by 150%. You got to give us more money and maybe we'll do better this time. It never gets any better. It was the same thing with the school closures. They they were able to profit or at least financially benefit from being able to say we're closed because we don't have enough money. So it's just the incentives are totally backwards in the current system.
0: Yeah, and you see the same relationship uh, with, uh, you know, administrators. The same thing happens in healthcare. Um, If you look over the last 50 years, an enormous increase in the cost of healthcare, but no corresponding increase in the pay of doctors, but an enormous increase in the cost of administrators. And I think you see something similar in universities as well. Um, You know, university professors aren't the ones that are making the big bucks from uh, their universities, charging these insane, obscene amounts of $80,000 a year to go listen to a bunch of Keynesian Muppets tell you that (laughs) you need the government to print money in order for money to work. But it's university administrators that are making the money. I think the saving account that you mentioned, the education saving account, is a great idea. But um, there are some concerns with it. I think the great idea about it is um, one concern, obviously, is that you you can't really have a savings account unless you have a money that works. And that's where the Bitcoin story comes in. So... You know, it 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 would be nice if we could just put everybody's taxes so that, you know, before you have kids, you're paying taxes, then you your taxes go into an education fund for your kids. And then when you have kids, you can tap into the taxes that you paid. If, you know, rather than the money just going straight to the um, schools, then you could get to keep right. that. But then you can't really do that because money's losing its value over time. And so then you need to have a money manager try and manage that money, which, you know, could work or it could fail so it's not much fun and that's I think where you know Bitcoin could be really powerful because that's really the real education saving account um, the real saving account just put your money in the money that can't be inflated and then you'll be able to afford afford school and not have to worry about uh that stuff what do you, what do you see a likely scenario for the evolution of these education saving accounts how, how do you see this developing politically
1: Yeah, I think it's first going to be in red states, which is what we're seeing already. You know, I mentioned that six states have gone all in by allowing all families to have uh, access to these universal school choice, uh, all families eligible, six states. And that's uh, Arizona, West Virginia, Iowa, Utah, Arkansas, and Florida. They're all states that are controlled by the GOP in the House, the Senate, and the, the governor's office. And but North Carolina, it would be the first state where there's a Democrat governor that gets universal school choice. But with with uh, North Carolina, it's not because the Democrat governor's going going along. It's because he doesn't have the power to veto and not get overridden uh, the school choice policy. So I think it's the GOP is going to lean into school choice as a political winner. And we saw this with Glenn Youngkin in Virginia, for example, where. Terry McAuliffe, the Democrat, in a state that went 10 points to Biden the year before, said, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach on the final debate stage. Well, Glenn Youngkin, the Republican, leaned into to his gaffe, the, the, the McAuliffe's gaffe, as a political winner as parental rights being his his campaign ad, basically, until election night. And Glenn Youngkin in, ended up winning with education voters by six points, according to Washington Post exit polling. And that was the number two issue in the election. So the more that the Republicans lean into this as a winner, the more that the Democrats are going to lose votes on it, or they'll have to defect on the issue and start to join the side of parents too. Because the more that the Republicans lean into this, they put the Democrats in a catch-22. They either have to pick the kids' union or the teachers' union, But if the Republicans are silent on on education, freedom and parental rights, well, then they're basically giving the Democrats a pass and letting them, you know, uh, join hand, lock arms with the teachers unions and not get any pushback for it from the parent groups. So we've actually seen some Democrats defecting on the issue partially because of this political pressure, for example, in Pennsylvania. Josh Shapiro, who's now the governor, he's a Democrat. He was up by double digits in the polls against Doug Mastriano, the Republican. Doug Mastriano started calling Josh Shapiro a hypocrite for sending his kids to private school, for going to private school. And I think Josh Shapiro looked over at Virginia and said, I don't want a Terry McAuliffe moment to happen to me. So he ended up putting education savings accounts in his education platform right before the election. And a lot of people were saying, oh, he did that just because, you know, he didn't really doesn't really believe in school choice. He's just doing that. to." He was reading the polls. He was reading the tea leaves. And my response was, it doesn't really matter the reason for the change. I would hope for it was a real change of heart, but that a high profile Democratic politician felt compelled to switch his stance right before the election on a big issue like school choice. That's good news for parents, regardless of the reason. It's probably because of political pressure, but Milton Friedman said it best. He said a lot of things best, but one thing that he said, a famous quote, was it's not about the way that you change things is not by putting the right people into office. That could help, obviously, uh, moving the ball down the road on, on your policy, but the way that you really change things is by creating a climate of public opinion where it becomes politically profitable. For the wrong people to do the right thing, and I think we're reaching that moment, that escape velocity, uh, that 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 power dynamic when it comes to the political process, where the wrong people are starting to have to scratch their heads a little bit and say, maybe I maybe I should support this too. Maybe I won't support as full blown as what the Republicans are supporting, but maybe I'll support something so that I can fend off some of the. New special interest, which happens to be, I'd say, is more of a general interest. The parents who want more of a say in their own kids' education. I mean, for a long time, it was just the teachers' unions basically running the show. But now, with the remote learning and parents being mobilized, they're showing up at the ballot box too uh, as a organized interest in some way. And they're they're the difference is they're fighting for their own kids. They're not fighting to take anybody else's kids away. So parents parents have been the change agent and it's getting some democrats to come along in in nebraska they just had their first school choice bill in history pass uh, I want to say last week it's not universal but it's a pretty dang good one and it's you know going from 0 to 60 it was it's a, it's a pretty big step in the right direction they had three democrats co-sponsor their bill now you know the majority of the the votes in favor were republicans all the other democrats voted against it but they needed those three votes because in Nebraska, you have a unicameral legislature. You, don't, you only have one body, one one house. And so you need a two-thirds majority to get anything done. So it's really hard to do it in Nebraska. But they were able to get the two-thirds vote uh, to pass school choice uh, this year in Nebraska. So in, the, in Georgia, there was a Democrat, Misha Mayner, who came out and supported school choice. So it's, it, they're more of the exception. Again, the Democrats kind of defecting on the issue but I think it has to do with political power. Some of them are just sticking their neck out and doing the right thing as well. But I think it's, this is the step, the way forward politically is the more, di- you know, you can make lefty arguments for school choice. That's not going to get Democrats to vote, to vote for it in the, long, in the long run. The way you get Democrats to vote for it is to make it politically advantageous for them to do so. The way that you do that is to have Republicans lean into it as a winner.
0: I see well generally one of my uh, one of my heuristics in life I guess is whenever you see a politician clamoring for something then it raises red flags for me so uh, thinking more critically about this I'm going to ask you a couple of non softball questions devil's advocate softball questions I'll take them <laughs> I wouldn't say devil I wouldn't say softball um, but right. I think um, I mean I, I think well the problem here is this so obviously it's I think there's an improvement if you take if you give at least parents the choice but it's still a big problem the fact that parents still have to pay taxes rather than just having private schooling in general and now I, I get that it would make more you know it would hold the schools more accountable but i think the really um, the sad um, and a cautionary tale here is universities if you look at universities in the u.s they don't have the same kind of power to take your taxes that uh, schools have, at least not directly. And so you do, as a student, have uh, school choice in, in where you want to go as a university, and it's a lot more choice than you do as a school. And yet, you know, school universities are still swimming in, I would say, irrelevant education as well as political propaganda. So, your, you know, your um school that's uh, your, your school teachers mm-hmm. that are coming up with all of this insane um garbage that they're teaching kids whether it's about uh, politics or it's about gender or race or sexuality or whatever they're learning that stuff at colleges <laughs> and they're learning it at universities that are closer to the system that you're advocating for in a sense that um taxpayer money goes indirectly to the university and you mm-hmm. uh, know individuals do have choice but ultimately and in the fiat standard same chapter where i quote you discuss schooling i i also discuss universities and i think if you look at universities you see the same kind of incentive problem although structured differently so in the case of universities they get paid um, you know governments primarily finance university in the us private and public universities make their money mostly from government a through research grants directly which you know allows the government to set and dictate the outcome of the research and the findings of the research. And B, indirectly and perhaps more importantly, through deciding which schools get uh, school loans. And so where can a student get a low interest rate um, education loan? Uh, that is a very big question. So if your school toes the line and does the right things, believes in all the absurdities of the current regime, then you get you, your students can go and borrow and become debt slaves for life mm-hmm. in order to pay mm-hmm. your administrators for your administrators to make money and then go and teach all of this crazy propaganda. So it doesn't turn out to be that much different because ultimately it's you, the students, not the one paying. Um, ultimately, you know who right. pays the piper calls the tune, and in this case, again, it's the government paying the piper so what do you think is this going to be the same situation with school choice I mean it, if you allow parents choice then yeah schools might have to um up their game in certain ways but at the end of the day you know there's an enormous number of schools and there's an enormous number of students and those students have to go somewhere I think there's a good reason to be worried that the same kind of incentives will recreate themselves and the same people who benefit from the current system will still manage to game it in their favor if this becomes more widespread? What do you think?
1: Yeah, I'd say with the higher education system, I mean, a lot of that funding is direct subsidies to the colleges, right, and universities. So it's it's still not completely voucherized, I'd say. You know, like a lot of the funding isn't in the form of, you know, Pell Grants are part of it, right? But that's not the lion's share of the funding. I think we spend, what, taxpayers spend over twenty thousand dollars per college enrolled student each year. I mean, they spend even more at the higher education level than we do at the K to 12 level through taxpayer sources. So I think that's part of it. Also, you know, a lot of it's the uh, accreditation systems with the universities and and the, you know, so that's different. And then also, I'm not sure how many providers of, of private education there are in the higher education system. So that, that could be a difference as well. But, you know, the, this is still an incremental step in the right direction, redirecting the funding from government institutions to at least giving parents the choice of where to send the money. So it may not be the perfect solution, which may be at the higher education level to just defund the universities altogether and to not have uh, comp- compulsory funding of, of higher education. Uh, but you know, I'd, I'd I'd rather have higher education funding if we're going to spend it go directly to students as well, and not direct subsidies in, in the form of grants to to the institutions to at least allow for more competition from the bottom up. That would be better than having all the money go directly to the universities. And that's kind of the argument I'm making with the K to 12 level. It's not perfection. There may be still some problems, but at least there's some competition we're redirecting funding from the government to individual families and giving them the choice. You don't have to accept the money if you don't want to use it. So it's all voluntary in that sense. And, you know, I, I usually hear of another argument, devil's advocate or, you know, uh, legitimate argument against K to 12 school choice is that, you know, he who pays the Piper calls a tune. This may lead to the private schools basically becoming like the public schools that people are trying to get away from. Because with government shekels comes government shackles is the main argument all here. But my main response to that is, again, we can't make perfect the enemy of the good. We already have 90% of kids stuck in purely controlled government institutions where they're learning that big government policy is a good thing. And the government can already regulate private and home education today. That's more likely to happen if you have millions of kids going to government institutions where they learn that big government policy is good and they might they might turn out to vote to regulate private and home education out of existence in the future. This has already happened historically. In, in Oregon in 1922, they outlawed home uh, private education and they didn't do that because of school choice. It's because they had authoritarians in power who wanted other people's kids to be stuck in their institutions to be raised in the way that they want them to be raised. Thankfully, in 1925, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled that the child is not the mere creature of the state hopefully more people would remember that today but even in 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 current day you look at like states like new york they have some of the worst homeschooling laws on the books and they don't have any private school choice programs so i would say this is a separate issue and school choice at least cuts against the likelihood of regulation happening. In the future in at least three ways one you have fewer kids educated in government schools where they're learning big government is good two you uh, make the concept more mainstream and more people are using private and home education the rest of society will be less likely to see it as some icky thing in the corner that a few people are doing they should be less likely to call to regulate something that is more mainstream and then three you have more people using private and home education you have a bigger coalition a bigger tent to fight against future calls for regulation of private and home education in the future. So those are three ways that school choice cuts against the, the likelihood of that happening. And then also we talked about Randy Weingarten earlier, the teacher union president. She's made the same argument against school choice that it, it might lead to regulations. Is she saying that because she's some, you know, anarcho-capitalist like us? No, she's saying that because she's a big government socialist who knows that if this argument gains traction, she'll be able to block uh, families from leaving her unionized schools. She'll keep her gravy train going in blue states and in red states. And she's just seen whatever argument she can use to try to keep her, her monopoly gravy train going. So if you're on Randy Weingarten's side and not the anarcho capitalist side, you're probably on the wrong side. And Thomas Sowell said it best there are no solutions, there are only trade offs. And school choice is an incremental step in the right direction, even if it's not uh, utopia.
0: Yeah. I mean, I gotta say, um, uh, the last couple of years I've learned the lesson, which is that, uh, nothing commends a man like his enemies. And so, you know, you don't ask about people's friends, ask about their enemies. And then, you know, <laughs> if you have the right enemies, then that says a lot. And so, you know, you've got Elizabeth Warren personally coming after uh, people like you, which I think is an enormous, enormous, uh, <laughs> enormous badge of honor. Um, she's, um, She's absolutely amazing as a, as a as a testament to the just absolute depravity of the American political class, in the sense that uh, um, you know the way that she goes after Bitcoin, pretending that it's oh it's a you know we're out there to save the environment, but she's obviously out there to save the banking cartels that uh, finance her campaign. Um, she's Talking about the environment while riding her private jet and hiding behind people so that they don't see her when she's in a private jet, she puts her school, she puts her kids in private school, and then pretends that she's in public schools. She also pretends to be Native American <laughs> because right, that also. Right. I think you know it's it's difficult to argue against you when you've got enemies like that. It's, um, I mean, if if she came out in opposition to motherhood and apple pie then uh, everybody would need to reconsider <laughs> <laughs> but what did you say i mean i think would i guess wouldn't would you say that it would be maybe better to dedicate all of this uh, political activist energy toward getting rid of educational taxes uh, getting rid of taxes that go toward uh, funding school mm-hmm. and just letting those schools sink or swim based on their own ability to get money directly from students.
1: Yeah, I mean, you could, I, I would say push for both and uh, see which one you're more likely to, I think you're more likely to get the reform that I'm pushing for. I think that's why we're seeing more success and just, it's a lot easier to make the argument to, we're not changing the funding, we're just reallocating it from government to people. And it's a, it's a libertarian step in the right direction. than if you were to come out and say, okay, we're going to defund public education altogether, that would probably require a constitutional amendment in every single state because each state has an education clause in their, in their constitution. So it's a lot heavier political lift. I'm not going to fight against anybody who wants to go out and try to make that case. You know, if, it, if, if that passes more power to you, but the same people who say that they would prefer that, they shouldn't come after me and tell me that I shouldn't take. Uh, the wins when we can. We got to take the W's or we're going to be stuck with the L. If we're if we're so focused on utopia, well, guess what? The status quo gets to continue its gravy train and the monopoly school system will continue the way that it is today. But yeah, if, if some, you know, look, we're, we have 50 laboratories of democracy. If there's a coalition in one state that really wants to try to get that done, maybe they, they can lead the way and show the other states that, that this is a, a good solution too.
0: Yeah, I mean, I obviously think it's um, it, it's generally a political dead end to campaign on lower taxes because quite simply, your opponent is going to, you know, you're campaigning against somebody whose election uh, campaign budget includes the taxes, effectively, because they're telling people they're handing money out, and you're out there saying no, let's not hand money out. So it's 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 a very very difficult sell. I, I definitely agree with that, but you know again uh, this is a Bitcoin podcast and of course um, (laughs) if there's a problem anywhere then Bitcoin can fix it and I think you know ultimately Bitcoin fixes this in two ways and the first way which is that it allows individuals to accumulate savings which leaves them less um, in need of sending their kids to public schools And you know, uh, if people were wealthier, if people could accumulate savings, if people don't have their money steal from them and they could just accumulate savings over time, I think we'd see a lot more um, improvement in education because people would be able to spend their money as they see fit. So that's one way of doing it. And I think the other way that Bitcoin is going to fix this is hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully in our lifetime um, by, shutting down the money printer and forcing governments to live (laughs) off their taxes. And then I think, you know, people will say, well, you know, well, this is all tax money. Like you're paying the taxes that are going to your school. Yes. But the fact that you, the, the fact that your government gets away with imposing such an enormous amount of taxes, in my opinion, is inseparable from the fact that they have the money printer It's the money printer that makes them so powerful that they can continue to increase all these forms of taxes it's the money printer that makes them essentially not need your consent in order to improve uh, in order to to add taxes so it's no coincidence that the uh, income tax was added when right when the federal reserve was created which you know it flies against the entire idiotic logic of why you would want the central bank because the whole idea was then well you know we can finance government spending all right so then why do you need an income tax it's a very common question that people get asked all the time and nobody has a very good answer for it why does the government need taxes if it can print money and the answer is because it can it can print money and okay. it can take your money and um, you know if you if you had a money printer that would allow you to also take people's money not just print your own and so why would you not um so i think taking away the money printer is going to um uh, be the uh, best root cause solution to this problem. So I hope you join us on our uh, Bitcoin journey.
1: <laughs> yeah, totally. And look, uh, they're not going to teach you this in the government school. So we need podcasts like this <laughs> one to to circumvent the indoctrination that's happening in the government school. And with school choice, we can at least get have an escape valve, get some people out of those institutions, start to expand their mind and learn more about uh, Bitcoin and alternatives that that and, and free market alternatives in general that uh, could lead to to a bigger societal change and a bigger shift.
0: Absolutely. I think it's also very telling that among Bitcoiners, you find a very large number of uh, homeschoolers and alternative right. schooling methods. I think um, money is the operating system for society. And once you've uninstalled the fiat operating system and upgraded to the Bitcoin operating system, you see that you know your uh, your personal operating system will just uh, switch from all kinds of things you you realize why do I have to subject my kids to all this silly propaganda? Why am I eating all this garbage that they're telling me to eat because it's cheap and good for the environment, and then <laughs> you know the rabbit hole just keeps getting deeper and deeper,
1: <laughs> yep, totally
0: all right well. Corey, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And I wish you all the best of luck on everything that you're doing. I hope you continue to make a lot of people mad on Twitter. And I hope you continue to post about their kids going to private school and placing (laughs) them in in, in these awkward situations and forcing them to back down.
1: (laughs) Yep, totally safe. Thanks for having me.
0: All right, cheers. Have a good day.